Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Blair, and thank you so much for listening today. The Epic Human Podcast is a long-form podcast featuring risk-takers and high-performers from all walks of life, including founders, venture investors, innovators, technologists, artists, athletes, you name it. This podcast was inspired by a series of conversations I recorded with my grandmother, Eileen, before she passed away. These conversations helped me fully appreciate the power of the human voice and the importance of capturing each of our unique stories in the brief time we have on this planet. By doing so, these stories and lessons can live on beyond us and benefit our descendants and the wider future generations. Trippy, I know, but it's true if you think about it. If you'd like to hear Eileen's story, you can read the article I wrote on Medium titled Why I Started the Epic Human Podcast. Quick update on me, I've joined a new investment firm called Coda Capital. I decided to leave my previous firm over this past summer and really wanted to take time to figure out what was next for me. So that's why I wasn't recording podcasts for a little while. Wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in venture or join a startup or do something totally different. But then I met the folks at Coda and I was really impressed. uh, Coda Capital is a stage agnostic investment firm uniquely investing in both private startups and public companies. The whole idea is that insights gleaned from the public markets help inform the venture strategy and vice versa. We invest broadly in enterprise B2B type companies, and I'll be focused primarily on series A and B investments. The team's made up of deeply experienced operators, talented investors, technologists, and down-to-earth human beings. So I'm super excited about this new chapter and wanted to share this news with you all. Uh, And it's important for me to mention that the views expressed in this podcast and all podcasts are my own and do not represent those of my employer or any organization I'm affiliated with. Today's episode features James Wells, my good friend for many years. James is currently the Vice President of Corporate Development at Sanctuary AI, a company building and scaling embodied artificial general intelligence. In this episode, James and I discuss the differences between various types of AI and opine about the future of the relationship between humans and intelligent machines. And if you thought James was a one-trick pony, you would be mistaken. James is an accomplished survivalist, yogi, Ironman, and meditator. Uh, Throughout the course of this episode, we're going to cover James's highly unique experiences, including completing a wilderness survival course in the middle of nowhere, Utah, running an Ironman race and doing almost no traditional training. Um, And by traditional training, I mean the whole running, biking, swimming thing. And learning and struggling through his meditation practice and the impact it's had on his personal and professional life. So it's a wide-ranging episode. We cover a lot of different topics, but I promise you it's all engaging and and quite uh, unique. Uh, This episode was also stitched together over a series of recorded uh, conversations that we had. And the final product, I think, is exceptional. And I really think almost anyone could get something out of our chat. Also wanted to mention that today's episode is, again, brought to you by SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm out of Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early-stage growth startups. Uh, As I've discussed earlier, as an investor, I've witnessed firsthand one of the most important decisions entrepreneurs make is choosing the right legal partner for their business. One common assumption is that a good lawyer is expensive. And so lots of entrepreneurs DIY why their legal needs or end up paying thousands of dollars per hour for an attorney's time. But it doesn't have to be that way. SBZ Legal specializes in working with early stage startups. The firm was founded by three Berkeley alum with the idea that business can be a tool for positive change. They focus on helping impact driven organizations with forming businesses, fundraising, hiring people, closing deals with customers and protecting their intellectual property. Not only does SBZ Legal take pride in doing high quality work, they're also transparent about pricing and they don't charge an arm and a leg. 
which is important when you're an early stage startup. You can learn more about SBZ at sbzlegal.com or you can contact them at info at sbzlegal.com. If you'd like to drop by and say hello, their address is 1939 Harrison Street, Suite 610, Oakland, California, 94612. And I'm legal or legally required to say that this may be considered attorney advertising. Uh, and if you happen to you know, reach out to them, please mention you came via the Epic Human podcast. So without further delay, please welcome an Epic Human, James Wells. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I would like to welcome James Wells to the show. Hi, James. How are you? Hey, Joe. Very well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, so James is head of business development at Sanctuary AI based in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, and we've known each other for quite a while now, James. It's been over five yeah. years now. And, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, we, we worked together back at a firm called Chrysalix, which, uh, which is in Vancouver. Um, and, and you were kind of my, my VC mentor. You were, you were kind of the wise, older associate slash VP. Um, and you really took me under your wing and taught me venture. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, Hardly. And, it was both ways, Joe. It was both ways. <laughs> and, and I also uh, have this fond memory and, and, and you know this is coming, but uh, of uh, one of the first times we went out, we were, we were at dinner together. Uh, it was actually a dinner hosted by one of the senior partners at the firm. Uh, and we, my wife and I were very young, fresh parents, had, had our baby who was like, I don't know, maybe two or three months old. And, uh, yeah. and you and, and Jen, your wife, were, were kind of hold, taking turns holding the baby and, and being, being great friends. And, and uh, you know, we could see that you guys were going to be awesome future parents. Uh, but there was this f- phenomenal moment when, uh, when you, were holding, you were holding our son Rowan. And uh, all of a sudden, you got this weird look on your face. And you, you kind of said, uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think something's happening. I think, I think you went to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, no. So I, I picked him up. I, I gave him a sniff. And I saw a big stain on your, your pants. And, yep. uh, and then I investigated and I said, oh, don't worry, it's just pee. Don't worry. Just, <laughs> and you gave me this look like, uh, this is still a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, that's a real thing. Um, and that was the and, moment I realized that I was indeed a parent. Uh, my, my perception of like what is gross had completely changed. <laughs> to, to, totally. And, and now I've got uh, two under two and I'm uh, knee deep in, in uh, urine every other morning. <laughs> exactly. You, you've, you've turned the same corner. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get it. I totally get it now. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, thanks for indulging me in that trip down memory lane. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so it's been an exciting few months for you. Um, you you mm-hmm. recently uh, started uh, this role at, at Sanctuary. And I'd love if you could just kind of give an overview of uh, the company and, and the vision and, and your role there. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to. Um, about three months now, I left uh, an eight-year career in, in seed stage venture and uh, joined two uh, very impressive and thoughtful founders. One is Jordy Rose, who started uh, D-Wave, which is the first commercially available quantum computer. And then Suzanne uh, Gildert, 
who started Kindred, which was the first company to launch a reinforcement learning AI hardware product for the e-commerce uh, picking and sorting market. And it's really, uh, my role is, is really leading up uh, business development to focus on the near term, high value, uh, uh, low complex applications for humanoid robots. So the, the grand vision is to build human-like machine intelligence. And that's a subset of artificial general intelligence, which you probably hear quite a bit about. And our, our model to do that is to build ultra-human-like robotic systems. So these are, these are robots that are indistinguishable from humans, physically, emotionally, and, and cognitively. And so obviously that's a big uh, 10, 20 year vision. And how do we map out our commercial strategy and our commercial roadmap from sort of day one to, to year uh, 10? So uh, it's obviously quite a daunting and super exciting space to be in. And the industries that are, have shown uh, uh, sort of uptake and, and traction just in our early conversations are sort of all over the map. So there's applications within financial services, uh, retail, hospitality, um, therapeutics, and it's really about partnering with long-term innovative visionary customers um, that want to benefit in the event that we're successful of actually creating machine intelligence that is um, as cognitively uh, equivalent to, to a human. Super exciting vision. Uh, I, I think for most of us, what comes to mind is is Westworld, and, and obviously that's a highly uh, dramatized yeah. version. But but what role? Yeah. Like so so let's take the long view though, just just for fun. The long view, yeah. like how do you and, and see humanoid type robots playing at pay, playing a role in, in our lives day to day? Yeah. So if you think about companionship and and empathy is sort of at the core of what we're trying to do. So we initially launched something called the Empathy Lab to measure um, social connection that a human would have for uh, a, a robot and then how do you quantify and, and optimize that. Um, but just bringing it back to um, the integration of a physical robot that uh, uh, moves and, and looks like a human and then layering on affective uh, software, which is basically um, emotionally intelligent software that can interpret your the sediment from the, your tone of voice, from from the words that you're saying, uh, from your your gesticulation, um, and so you know it's it's more about um, if you've ever seen that movie Her, how we can build these highly engaging empathic robots um, to help people through a whole multitude. Of, um, of, of problems they, they have on the day-to-day. -day. And, you know, a big one, um, mental, mental uh, health. Um, another one is around dementia. So I'll just dive into that for a, for a quick uh, amount of time. The dementia um, is really challenging mentally and physically for, for family members and, and caregivers. And one thing we're focused on is automating social tasks. So a lot of robotics companies are, are focused on automating repetitive mechanical tasks. And the way we're, we've approached teaching um, 
the robot how to engage socially um, is uh, sort of quite conducive to care of, of seniors, um, and particularly seniors with, with dementia. And as I understand it, there's a, you, you, you all have a unique uh, perspective or philosophy on how robot, how the, the robotic kind of future artificial intelligence-based mind connects with the, the human body. And because theoretically you could do both of these things, uh, you could decouple those, you could do each of these individually, but you have a specific uh, philosophy on, on why that needs to happen together or, or the, there's added benefits to doing so. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's our philosophy. It's sort of a long-standing concept in uh, intelligence theory and it's called embodied cognition. And, and that is intelligence arises when a body moves through space because a body has to navigate uncertain environments day after day after day. And, you, you know, uh, if, you, if you think about how our brains evolved, uh, we basically survived long enough to reproduce and, and that cycle continued for, for hundreds of thousands of, uh, of years. And so we're basically emulating digitally how the human mind evolved. And that is... Uh, creating, uh, you could call it sort of digitizing the human sensorium, um, but basically with all the IoT sensors available today, we can re recreate through vision and uh, hearing, sense, smell, touch, all that um, that a human would interpret and then model that uh, intelligence um, or that behavior based on those inputs. So we can basically replicate um, uh, uh, um, how the human intelligence evolved, and at the end we might uncover uh, a, a human-like machine intelligence. Amazing, amazing. And um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the historic uh, success and, and applications of robotics? Uh, specifically, what I what I'm getting at is. Uh, there have been approaches to kind of this fully embodied approach in the past, uh, but there, there tends to be kind of a regression to the mean around approaching phys uh, specific applications for robotics, right? So solving a specific task uh, oftentimes doesn't require the full humanoid robot, right? It might just require an arm or a vision system or a... Or, or what have you. Can you just talk about the, the philosophy or the, the approach you're taking to kind of realize this, this goal that's kind of been on our minds collectively as, as humanity for so long? Mm, yeah, no, it's a really good question and something we talk about almost every day because it's very seductive to uh, you, you know, map out the, the product specs and uh, the criteria and build a purpose-built robot. And when you do that, you lose this generality um, uh, cognitive architecture that we're really trying to do. And so actually the founders um, went down this path three years ago with a company called Kindred. You know, the original uh, intent was to build this general purpose uh, um, cognitive architecture. And then as they talked to customers and learned about market opportunities um, in picking and sorting uh, T-shirts in, in e-commerce warehouses, uh, you, you know, you you required less and less the humanoid form factor, right? So it became no longer mobile. Um, you, you know, it didn't need a face. 
Uh, it really just needed an arm and a protective casing to enable it to, to do its job. And then it was rewarded on um, the number of uh, 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 items it could sort in a, in, a, in a period of time. And so it, it totally just moved away from this um, general cognitive architecture, which we sort of see as the, the holy grail. And so we're seeing it again, you know, as we talk to customers, like, well, we just need it to do X or Y. And so the, the I guess, challenge here is to align both the technical um, and visionary objectives with what the customer wants. And so that's part of the challenge, you know, these mission-based ventures face. And it takes an extraordinary amount of discipline um, and focus and um, uh, commitment from, from the founders and and uh, Jordy and Suzanne are, are definitely definitely of that that type. And and what do you say to folks who uh, are are fearful of AI or are fearful of of humanoid robotics? Uh, because a lot of folks have, have have talked about that. Elon's talked about that. A number of others, uh, kind of uh, high big name people. Uh, how do you how do you all think about it, and and what do you say to people who have those fears? Yeah, there, there's not a great answer, and you know our PR budget isn't big enough to <laughs> con- convince everyone, and so we're sort of okay with uh, some of the, um, the 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 commentary. Um, one of the yeah, I, I'm just trying to say, I mean, no, no one's ever done this before, right? And so the examples that we draw from are all science fiction-based, are all in movies, <laughs> and are typically mostly dystopian, right? And mm. so people immediately use those references um, as examples of where this could go. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're not 100% confident that it will all be rainbows and um, unicorns and Oftentimes, whenever you're you're sort of pushing the the edge of science, you, you sort of take on the, some of these ethical and moral um, um, challenges based on the transformative nature of a of a technology. Um, net net, we we think it's going to be positive. Um, you, you know, people the, the biggest issue people have is you know the replacement of jobs. And you know, McKinsey did this hundred year study and looked back at ten year increments of how disruptive technology affected jobs. And in 100% of the time, uh, there was a net-net growth in jobs. However, in the short term, there was uh, radical uh, job loss. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, if your horizon is 10 plus years, um, we think this will be transformative for society and, and ultimately beneficial. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a believer in kind of the, the beneficial impact of technology, as you know, uh, and I, I, I tend to not worry so much. I mean, I do, I do worry when some of those dislocations happen uh, all of a sudden. Uh, like, so for example, if yeah. every, uh, every truck was turned autonomous, like, you know, over the course of six months, um, I think that would be devastating. But I think what happens more often, I, or probably 100% of the time, is that it's more of a slow, uh, drip and it, 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 it happens more gradually and it does ideally give people some time to kind of retrain or or uh, you know or repurpose themselves and the other kind of big belief I have I don't know if you share this is that um, I think in the future automation is going to help uh, 
uh, folks just create, uh, just be more valuable and, and use their time uh, on some of the higher level tasks that humans are, are best at. And, and again, I think this will be a gradual um, turn, but you know, even with all of the, I think it might've been that same McKinsey report, even with all of the, the buzz around uh, automation replacing jobs, I think what's more likely to happen is it, it replaces specific parts of a job. Right, and so yeah. it's augmenting yeah. human activity um, in in the short, medium term. Maybe not in the far, far distance term, but uh, but the vision, or at least the idea of that, in the long, long term, is that it it, it frees us up to do more things we want to do. It makes uh, products and, and living cheaper, energy cheaper, everything uh, cheaper, and therefore living allowing us to live a more abundant life. Uh, is that is that the way you think about things, or, or do you have a kind of a different opinion? Yeah, no, largely the, the same. I mean, just your point about what is a job, right? It's, it's a bundle of job tasks, mm -hmm. and you know we can offer a lower cost, higher uh, performing uh, uh, element of a job by replacing some of the tasks, and then it's a redistribution. Um, of the tasks across the entire workforce, right? So uh, it, it will be disruptive, um, but it, it's not like, you, you know, it's a plug and play robot for a human kind of thing. It'll be a re reassignment and redistribution of, of job uh, uh, tasks that ho hopefully will uh, offer the employer much much cheaper labor with, uh, with uh, consistent service quality. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of intrigued by this idea of universal basic income and that, you know, if we get to this point where, you know, and this would probably be more in the long term, but if we get to this point where uh, a lot of the work is being done um, and, and there is some of this dislocation happening, you know, at the, at, at the, at the end of this kind of transformation, um, I think a universal basic income could and, and would probably make sense. I don't know if you've, you've looked at that closely. Yeah, yeah, and I'm kind of going a, a bit above my pay grade here. I mean, Suzanne, um, who is sort of the, the technical and creative genius behind this, is, um, has paid a lot of attention to the ethical and moral and sort of what we call post-capitalism implications of this. Because if you can effectively... Um, create a piece of software that uh, uh, as it's it can do what a human can do in a humanoid form factor, you can basically do any job in, in the economy and at 10% of the cost. And so what are the implications of that? What are the tax implications of that? Um, and that's, that's, there's some big unknowns there. And just switching gears, what's it been like for you? I mean, you've you've been in venture for so long. What, what's it like uh, being on the other side of the table and, and being at a startup? Oh, I love it. I mean, um, first of all, the the uh, it's a women-led organization. So two of the three founders are females, and the lead software engineer is a female. And it's a different dynamic. Um, I'd say my last eight years have all been with white males, uh, uh, and the, most of the U.S. actually, most of the U.S. right now, even though being in being in Canada. Um, so there's a different feel there. But also, um, you know, with these transformative uh, platform plays, you basically have license to have a whole host of conversations with really intelligent people at the VP and, and C level. And so I've quite enjoyed that. And that reminds me a little bit of 
you know, at fundraising uh, and going around to different LPs. Um, but, you know, the, the pitch is similar in that, you know, when you go to an LP, you say, we don't know what we're going to invest in, but we know it's going to be transformative, right? It's, <laughs> and, uh, and, and here are the relationships and here's why. Um, you know, it's similar at this stage. I mean, we're in early days uh, and we're making big, big, um, uh, making uh, hypotheses that uh, may or may not play out. And so people are really buying the vision and the team and, uh, and what we've shown to date. So a lot of similarities and I, I've, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I kind of view myself as, you know, not a VC, not an entrepreneur, but, you, you know, just an, an active participant in the venture ecosystem. And there's so many roles wrapped up in that, um, that I just love this whole, whole space of innovation and, um, and, and, you know, working with corporates and, and entrepreneurs and technologists, it, uh, it's, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, we're, we're certainly excited to see where it leads, and uh, I'm sure we can philosophize about the future of robotics and automation all day. But uh, totally. I do want to get to uh, some of your, your stories and life experiences because you are a uh, treasure trove of uh, fantastic stories. And, and so I, I'd love to jump to those. <laughs> sure. I signed up for survival school. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It was was an interesting experience right from the get go because, you know, having grown up in Vancouver um, and really enjoying the outdoors, I sort of wanted to improve my, my uh, wilderness skills. And a lot of the, the classes out there, you you know, you you sit in a classroom and they kind of draw it out and you go out and, and you practice it. And I found this Survival survival school in Boulder, Utah, called Boss uh, Boulder Outdoor Survival School, mm-hmm. and, and basically they break you down, and, and, and then have you figure out how to survive, and 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 if you fall, they've kind of got someone there to to coach and, and and nudge you, but it's just a very untraditional way to learn very traditional skills, and so there was nine of us on a fourteen week. Um, uh, trip uh, with three instructors, and basically you go out into the wilderness with no tent, no sleeping bag, you know, largely no food, uh, a, a blanket that you uh, construct into a backpack, <laughs> and um, basically for the first four days you just you know walk through the wilderness and don't eat, and they're like, okay, now you're now you're hungry. Now we're going to show you how to make fire without. Um, any tools. Now we're going to show you how to, you know, manage your heat and and build uh, debris huts and survive overnight. And um, so, so basically, it was the first time that I snuggled with men um, <laughs> o- o- overnight. You know, somewhat complete strangers, and it just doesn't matter, right? Like when you're pushed to those extremes, like the subtleties of being polite and, you know. Um, uh, or, or the subtleties of politeness just don't don't really matter. Um, so I, I bonded with two guys, and we built these debris huts. And I was the longest and had the most surface area, so therefore I was in the middle. Um, <laughs> and what's a debris okay. hut? What what is that? So it's basically scrounging a lot of the fallen leaves or or light dirt that actually has great heat retention value. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean it was it was unbelievable. If you pile these things high enough. And you you snuggle in, 
um, with some some critters, it it uh, it act, it acts almost like a down, um, mm. and just re- retains the the heat. So basically, you'd spend two hours um, framing almost a bed with with uh, some logs and then filling it with leaves, and then basically jumping in and putting your blanket over you, and um, y- 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 yeah, and depending how cold the other guys were, they'd put their hands right in your pockets, and. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm and uh, bed down. Wow, wow. And what, it, it, yeah. is, that, is that effectively just trying to simulate the worst case scenario? Like, uh, what's, their, what's their logic? What's the rationale? Yeah, so what is it? It's the rule uh, of, of uh, threes, or no, I forget what the rule is, but, but basically, um, if, uh, if you find yourself in a situation where you've got to um, sur- survive, you, you know, what do you do? And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of takeaways for me is you can walk a really long way with basically no food. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if, if you're off a, a, a trail or whatever, I mean, you can basically walk back to, to civilization. Um, uh, I'm just trying to remember the rule of threes. I think it was, you, you know, if you find yourself in a situation, it's, you got three seconds to check your, your body for any, um, uh, life, uh, life, um, ending cuts or wounds. And then you've got three minutes to sort of calm your mind. And then you've got three hours to regulate your heat. So make sure you're not too cold or too hot. Mm. And then you've got three days to find water. That's typically how long you can go without water. And then you got three weeks, um, to go, uh, uh, that you can go without food and then three months, is kind of when you start to lose your mind. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you're totally alone in, in the woods. You know, if you've seen Castaway, um, where Tom Hanks befriends that softball, or that uh, volleyball, yeah. that's actually what they recommend you do. Like, make friends with the sticks and no, the squirrels. No, really? Yeah, yeah we're wow. social, social beings, man. Wow. Um, but, uh, y- yeah, I mean, we... And then for the food, so we went four days without food, and they gave us a banana... And um, I will never forget that banana. <laughs> I I basically like rubbed it on my face, like peeled the inner peel with my teeth. You know that rind that you never eat. Yeah. I mean, you just suck it for all its <laughs> all it's worth. And um, the the amazing thing was, I was full after that because my stomach had shrunk right. so much. I mean, you're just so so adaptable. And then we basically got a handful of trail mix. Um, for each day until day nine, which then they brought out a sheep uh, that we slaughtered, uh, cooked up its blood, skinned it, um, cooked up the, butchered it, cooked up the meat, big bread in the stomach, um, and basically wasted nothing, right? So we we made pelt out of the the skin. And then um, the last two days, you kind of went out on your own to practice the skills, right? So can you make a fire? Can you make your own debris hut? And um, that's a time for self-reflection when you're sure. completely alone, you know, haven't showered, um, and it's just so gratifying to to you know start a fire from literally nothing. And um, I just remember having no open loops in my mind, like no um, to-do items, you, you, you know, n- n- no worries really. It was mm. just a it was just a very pure time, and that. And we'll get into how that affected some of my future activities. But 
and what was uh, two questions? Uh, yeah. What was the hardest part, and then what was your what were some of your big takeaways from that experience? Um, hardest part was caring about other people. Um, like mm. I, 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 there was nine of us, right, and we were a group, and there was this guy who had done <laughs> who had done two, who had done two terms in Iraq, and he had U.S. military training, hmm. and he was all about um, making sure the group was okay and would always tend to the laggard. And it w and I guess, you know, the belief is no leave no man behind. And he was unbelievable. <clears throat> like he would sacrifice himself for the group. And I, I just looked at this guy like, I, I am I must be a selfish person because I am basically holding on a thread here just trying to like <laughs> put one foot in front of the other. Right. And, and here you are like totally leave the group. So I, I guess that was more of a takeaway then one of the more challenging things, but, um, yeah, but it, uh, but it was hard to, it, it, you know, it was hard. I mean, normally in our lives, we, we at least have the, the opportunity to think about others. How are others feeling? How can we do that? But you're saying yeah. in a survival situation, your, your, your lizard brain kicks in and you're just like, I need food. I need shelter. <laughs> like, you know, let's, yeah. let's not worry about everybody else until we get our basic needs covered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, what ended up happening, I, I rolled my ankle on like day 10. So I was the, <gasps> the, the weakest link oh, no. and, and, and had to depend on people. And it killed me um, oh. because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to sort of be the, the, the laggard. Um, but uh, I, I made, made some pretty strong connections. I, I'd say one of the key takeaways is knowledge is really light, right? So if you understand what to do out there you don't need a tent you don't need um you know a, a cook stove and and all this other stuff so you can actually traverse um land uh much more efficiently uh and and sort of knowing that in my bones kind of thing because I, I learned it in a state where you're quite um you know not not desperate but it's 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 a pretty uncomfortable um uh time um, and, and then just, just resiliency, right? I mean, I sort of surprised my, I think the group surprised the, uh, themselves just, you know, what we could do and how far we could go. And, um, you know, by the end we were all still laughing and, hmm. um, uh, yeah. And, and you lost some weight, right? I mean, most people probably lost some weight as going through that experience. Yeah, yeah. I think I lost 12 pounds in 14 days. Yeah. Um, and then literally in two days, gained it all back. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. I, I, I can remember. So this was in Utah, right? So we went, and the closest town was uh, Provost, which is um, a very traditional um uh, Mormon town and the gay pride was in that town hmm. uh, the gay pride parade was in that town the, the day we got back and I just remember you know you come out of just not seeing another human for 14 <laughs> days and then coming into this and I was thinking oh what what's going on here like has the world totally <laughs> turned upside down um, but uh, no I remember that distinctly and the, and the food uh -huh. uh, went to a restaurant and one of those all-you-can-eat um, soft-serve places. <laughs> and and I remember telling the guy what I had just done. He was like, oh, dude, it's on the house. Like, eat as much as... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And, and uh, 
uh, okay, where to go next? There's so Sorry. many, so many good stories here. Um, let's go to. Uh, well, you mentioned that some of this soul searching led to some other decisions. So I'll let you kind of guide us as to where did that take you? Because you've you've undergone a, a few transformations, a few uh, had a, some unique experiences from there. But what is was this what led you to some of those things, or or was it was it more disjointed? Um, I think I think it it helped. So yeah, just putting the and pause on, on the career the the you know spending a lot of time by yourself uh, or with a group uh in the outdoors sort of tipped me off to this whole mindfulness uh movement right and this was gosh this is four years ago and, and that was sort of interesting that that scratched a bit of a an itch but i i really didn't buy it i mean this whole idea of of um you, you know sitting in an urban environment and clearing your mind um uh i, I just I, I struggled with it so i you know i went to silent retreats and i um uh read books about it and i sort of elevated my my understanding about it but but ultimately i, I found it was really helpful in sort of de-stressing and 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 you know bringing focus in a calm quiet uh environment which you know, we live our lives not in that environment, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we, I think we all have stressful jobs and um, deadlines and uh, big projects. And, and what I'm sort of noodling on in my head now is, is ambition, like ambition breeds um, stress, right? And mm -hmm. so is there a way to sort of balance, um, you, you know, a peaceful mindset with, with extreme ambition? Um and so I sort of came up with this experiment, and, and that was to, you know, practice mindfulness in an, an extremely uncomfortable situation. And so I chose to do an Ironman um, mm -hmm. without any training other than yoga and, and, and practicing mindfulness and, and to see and to test this and to really uh, explore what mindfulness could be, um, you know, in a challenging uh, uh, environment. And so you had done some shorter triathlons and you had done some yoga, but you were, you were not an expert in either of the, these things. This was a real le reach for you. Yeah. So, so I'd never, I've never run a marathon, which is what you have to do in Ironman <laughs> and, uh, certainly never swam the four kilometers, uh, you got to do in an Ironman. Um, I had done quite a bit of cycling, um, mm -hmm. you know, just around town and then, um, uh, yeah, so I, I had some familiarity with that, but yeah, certainly not at those, at those distances. And, and so walk us through that journey. You, you set this kind of somewhat outrageous type of goal, yeah. uh, and lots of people thought you were crazy. Um, yeah. and, uh, it, how much time did you give yourself? And then tell us about your, uh, your regiment, your yoga regiment. Yeah. Um, disciplined yoga training. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was kind of going back and forth with it with my wife, and um, she said, well, why don't you get or, or think about getting a sponsor? So I, so I actually, um, it was, uh, I was sort of serendipitous in that I had to give a presentation at a building, and in that building was the head office of Canada's largest uh, yoga company. 
And so I thought, ah, okay, I'll just go check it out. So I gave my presentation. I went down there and I was explaining the, my concept to the secretary, like, yeah, I'll just do yoga and then I'll do an Ironman. And she didn't really get it. She's like, so you're going to do like a downward dog during the run? Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't really get it. And there was some guy in the back cubicle, like stood up and cheered. He was like, that's a great idea. So anyway, <laughs> I, I got in front of the CEO and he decided to, to sponsor it, um, which is basically free yoga and some, um, some support with uh, yeah, some yoga teachers. But basically their business is mostly driven by um, female uh, guests. And so they wanted to show that, you know, not only is this, you know, helpful for men, but could play a role in, in sports. So he was actually quite, quite supportive. And uh, it was going to be 90 days of doing yoga every day. And sometimes I did it twice a day, or even nine times a day, I think was the, the record. Um, and then on the 90th day, uh, I do an Ironman. Wow. And, and I, I, I needed um, some sports specific training because so for example the swim you got to swim in a wetsuit and i've never really done that so i bought a wetsuit mm -hmm. um and then the bike is 180 kilometers and you know if you're off if your posture or your positioning's off a little bit uh, i think i calculated it was like 50,000 revolutions of your of your um wheel and so that that adds up so i had my bike um custom fit to my super awkward lean frame <laughs> And then, um, and then running, like no one just runs a marathon without doing any, uh, uh, running, but, but I found these shoes that are for trail runners that run, you know, a hundred kilometers and they literally made me two inches taller because of the, the padding. But that was the only savior to kind of restrict all the, the joint, uh, impact. This is the, the Hoka shoes. The Hoka. The yeah. Hoka. Uh, yeah. You're, you're a, I know a number of people who are who stand live by those. Those. I, those I will shoes. never buy another running shoe. Other than <laughs> it, is, it is unbelievable. So, so I ended up doing 14 hours, full disclosure, of sports-specific training, um, usually with uh, someone who was quite uh, well versed in that in sure. that sport. But you know, most people will train six months to a year, yeah. uh, do 14 hour training weeks. Sure. Um, so I was at a bit of a, obviously, a bit of a. Um, uh, uh, disadvantage, but that's kind of what I wanted, right? Like I didn't want to wreck my body. Yeah. And what ended up happening is, is yoga is amazing for toning and strengthening, you know, your ligaments. And I was very flexible. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I actually, well, I mean, it depends where you want to take this conversation, but there was actually some, some really clear benefits of what, um, yoga can do for, for the, the triathlete. Yeah, please, please tell us about the day. Tell us about the, the benefits, the drawbacks. Yeah. So, so the experiment, um, was not to win Ironman. Obviously it was just to, to finish. And right. so you've got seven, 17 hours and each event has a cutoff time. So basically I had to go fast enough to meet those cutoff times. Um, but slow enough that I could survive, 17 hours and so yoga my my idea was well if i just work really hard in yoga i can get my heart rate up high enough um so that it translates into um a speed that i can meet these hurdle rates in mm -hmm. the uh in in the ironman um 
And so I took yoga really seriously. <laughs> like, Clearly. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, y- you know, diet is the fourth sport in, in triathlon. So um, <laughs> people were saying, well, you got to, you know, tune your body to what you're going to eat. So I was in yoga, you know, with those gel tabs and with power bars. And people were like, it's a one hour class. Like, <laughs> they're going to be OK. But I, I would do silly things like I'd go to hot yoga for back-to-back-to-back classes. So I'd be quite dehydrated Mm. um, because how do you emulate a a 17-hour day doing yoga, right? It's pretty, pretty, pretty hard. You you just do a lot of yoga classes back-to-back, and so that's what I did. Um, And um, so when the day came, um, I felt really, really good. And, you know, talking to folks who have done Ironman, they they said, you usually show up in – you know, you've been training and there's, there's a, a lingering pain in, in the joints or the muscle. And, you know, I didn't have any of that. I basically prepared my body to take just a lot of discomfort and, and, and pain. And leading up, I, I should say, I also meditated every day for, for um, uh, usually about 20 minutes. And the mindfulness practice changed a little bit too. And I think this is important to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. It, in a traditional uh, meditation, you, you, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but you, you basically have an anchor, and that's your breath. Mm-hmm. And when your mind gets distracted, you bring it back to the anchor. When right. your mind gets distracted, you bring it back to the anchor. But I, I found the distractions were really distracting, like like emotionally um, uh, vexing, that I, I couldn't, I had to kind of ditch the anchor and just spend time dwelling with whatever that um i call them kind of psychic knots right and so just like you would relax a physical muscle by applying pressure to it i would do that with some of these mental and emotional knots that would sort of come up when i was sitting there meditating and so it was sort of this two-step practice where you know i clear the mind and then something i could not ignore or i felt was um you know unchecked or there was an open loop that I, I just sort of dwell. And, you know, weird stuff came up from like high school and, you know, mm. decisions I and regrets and, and all this stuff. But eventually it all kind of just became this very um, calm state where those things didn't come up anymore. So when I was in Ironman, I, I did that exact practice. So my breath was the anchor and I'd bring it back to the breath because, you know, your mind's like, are you an idiot? Like you're, you're really, you're really going to do this. <laughs> you're, you're probably not going to finish. And what are you going to tell people? And you, you know, I mean, all these doubts. Sure. And so, so I would, you know, spend time like th- think and uh, not um, just sort of dwelling in those thoughts, but it was more physical pain that would come up. So with the swim, for example, after two kilometers, my arms felt like they were gonna totally fall off. Like mm-hmm. I, I couldn't really feel them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of grinning and bearing it and you know fighting through, I, I sort of embraced the pain and relaxed into it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And so mm-hmm. my heart rate, um, I, I had a target heart rate that I had translated into a pace that would allow me to finish. But mm-hmm. basically, um, relaxing into the pain was mm-hmm. kind of uh, quite quite successful for me um sure and that's that's what yoga is great at i mean that that's that's part of the practice of yoga is feeling the pain and breathing through it relaxing through it getting comfortable with it exactly so it's interesting that that translates 
uh, so yeah. well to to Ironman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so I so I completed the swim, and <clears> I, <throat> I'm touching down the sand and thinking, okay, I can do this. This that was I, I had a swagger in my step at that point, mm-hmm. um, and of course, very mindfully, and you know, walked into the change tent and took a deep breath and you know took it all in, and I you know I realized at that time you know everyone's frantically trying to get into their biking uniform to get on the bike. And and here I was, you know, peacefully making eye contact with all these naked men mm. trying to hustle out the tent. And I was like, oh, I'm totally the pervert here. <laughs> um, but that's then, the best feeling coming out of the swim because you're like, okay, my arms can rest. Uh, now yeah. it's, all, it's all legs. Uh, all legs. And, and, and you're getting out of the water, so you feel fantastic. So, uh, okay. And, and so then, then the bike ride. So then the bike ride, and my theory was, well, if I get tired, I'll just coast. Um, but of course, it was in Whistler, which I'm now told has the highest elevation difference of any Ironman race. And so it's quite hilly through the mountains. Um, and that was that was a challenge. It was more the um, the, the headwinds that, that you'd get. Mm. Uh, and uh, But a, a great place to just be in your body and just... Um, feel um and it was quite interesting um throughout the 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 race there's drop bags and um you know different people write notes that i didn't read ahead of time that i'd read out on the on the race (laughs) and my wife had written um uh being the the moment as if you had chosen it and and that sort of forces you to take ownership of your situation Mm. and for whatever reason um, really just sort of pits you against the, the challenge. And I, yeah, I found that quite, quite helpful. But anyways, wise, uh, wise words from, from Jen, who's a wonderful yeah. woman. And, uh, and she also packed you some special snack, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, yeah. That I, um, decided to just, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know at the time, but, um, that was on the run portion. Oh, okay. And um, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I ended up just running right by it and not not needing it in the end. But, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then yeah, so I was at ten hours I think when I started the marathon, and uh, coming off the bike, I can remember my hip flexors pretty much saying stop. Right, like that mm-hmm. was pretty uh, pr- pretty painful. Um, but again, just sort of bringing it back to the breath and then being right there with the, with the hip flexors for the majority of the, of the race. And it was a two lap race. And I can remember, you know, I ended up finishing at sort of 15 hours and an hour 13, you kind of get the zombie march. There's a lot of people who with their heads slunk over and they're kind of dragging their feet. And, and, um, I have to say, I felt great. Like I was so pumped because I was going to finish and I felt just so empowered and um yeah and then and then there was a bear we ran into a bear with two cubs what yeah <laughs> and, and then i realized you know i don't have to outrun the bear i've just got to outrun this guy beside me <laughs> <laughs> and they uh yeah they had to move the whole course um yeah i remember that now wow. um and uh yeah so at about 15 and at about 14 hours and 50 minutes i came around the last bend and you know, if you talk to anyone finishing Ironman, it is a euphoric experience. It is unbelievable, um, just the feeling. And it turns out that my wife had a friend whose husband was the announcer 
at the finish line. Hmm. And so she had sort of told him the preamble. And so when I came into the shoot, which is about a 500 meter stretch where everyone is, you know, cheering and there's the, um, the, the announcer, Mm -hmm. he had sort of given the backstory and was like, yeah, this guy was just at yoga. (laughs) And so people went crazy, or at least what I thought was crazy. <laughs> and, and I tell you, man, oh, it, was, it was such a moment. Like, I, I totally cried. And um, wow. there, there's a picture that Jen got captured of me. And it's, I'm not sure I'll be ever that euphoric again. It was, you know, there's a few moments in life, and it was luckily ca- captured by um, the camera. And then right before the finish line, I did a downward dog. <laughs> and, uh, and stretched it out and, and, and closed it out. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, amazing. Wow, yeah. what, what a story. Yeah. Uh, incredible, incredible. Uh, and man, Would I do and, it again? And, Probably not. <laughs> well, and, and well, why not? I mean, like, what was, your, what was your takeaway from that? I mean, it sounds like it was, in the end, a, a hugely positive experience for you, but yeah. explain. Yeah, I, I, um, I'd probably seek out, and I did, um, a, another mindfulness physical challenge. Mm-hmm. That's not, not the Ironman. Like, I, I don't think I could ever replicate that. I mean, so many things came together. Um, you know, the day and my diet and, you know, people opened up their houses where we got to stay in Whistler. And it was literally like a Cinderella storybook. And, and so um, after that, my, my friend was like, look, I'm doing a 50-kilometer trail run. Um, in the fall, in the mountains, uh, do you want to come with me? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. I mean, I don't need to train and I can do these things. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I made the mistake of showing up without a jacket. And so I, I went to the grocery store and I bought a jacket and um, ended up finishing this race. And it took me nine hours. I was literally the last person. And, <laughs> and um yeah, uh, uh, I'm not a masochist, honestly, but, but, but the last like 200 meters, I kind of, you know, they were, they were shutting down the event and they were going to go out on reverse trail to, to look for me and kind of came hobbling out of the woods and Jen totally broke down, um, just cause I was in this state <laughs> um, of almost hypothermia. Um, so it, uh, yeah, I, 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 I kind of like, like, yeah, that those sort of events, but I'm not sure I'd do Ironman. Quite the contrast to to the you know different oh, yeah. different experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Nobody's at the finish line, <laughs> and uh, your your wife's crying instead of cheering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. great. <clears throat> I was thinking as you were talking about the Ironman, um, when you said the fear of telling people I I failed at this. And I wonder if, like, one of the benefits of setting such a crazy goal is that everyone thinks you're not going to be successful anyway. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so if you fail, it's kind of like, well, I just met everyone's expectations. But if I succeed, wow, are people going to be shocked? Totally. Totally. And that's why, you know, setting goals should move the needle. Like, if, if you're, if you know you're going to finish, it's not really a challenge. Yeah. Right. Like if, I mean, it's, it's like, Oh yeah, that was kind of expected. But, uh, but honestly, I I had doubts throughout the whole thing and, and, and the, the sort of mindfulness and sitting with those thoughts and working through those thoughts was so much a part of this that doesn't really come out in, um, 
in uh, in the experience. But but basically, coming back to this peaceful ambition kind of concept, I mean, how do you take on these ridiculously ambitious projects, but not get eaten up in the insecurity and the stress? And, and how do you manage the, that throughout the journey? And this kind of two-step uh, process uh, um, is something I've been applying. And, you know, I've no idea if it works for other people, but I, I seem to have found a, a, a practice that, that's helpful for me. Well, it's, it's not for the faint of hearted, and, uh, but it seems to have had a big effect on you. And, yeah. and I can definitely see the benefits. But let me ask you this. Does it, is it the type of thing where you do it once, you're transformed, you have a new insight, and you can apply it going forward? Or is it, or is it the type of thing that the, the benefits, whether spiritual, mentally, uh, fade, and you have to kind of keep challenging yourselves in interesting ways? And how have you thought about that? Oh yeah, it's totally the latter. I mean, it's a muscle, right? It's a mental muscle that you've got to, that you've got to keep up and train. Um, and uh, yeah, that sort of became evident when we had our first kid because the uh, no time to to practice meditation in those, <laughs> in those first few months. And and um, you know, just being aware of that, I noticed that that change that some of those thoughts and, and feelings would sort of creep creep back in. Um, I, I think for me, like like one thing I'm pretty uh, cognizant of doing is, you know, there's a lot of great advice out there, but it's hard to actually own it unless you you really dwell and and, and own it. Um, and so for me, it was okay. This mindfulness thing has has a role, uh, can be impactful, and it's something I'm going to dedicate a lot of my, you know, precious time to uh, going forward. That that was sort of, I guess, the main takeaway that there's there is something here, and it's, um, yeah, it can be pretty pretty impactful. The the other cool thing about it, I think, I'm just thinking aloud right now, is that there was a, there was an experimentation aspect to it. And, and what I kind of hear you saying is you, you kind of had to make it your own. Like you get some basic principles, but mm -hmm. then you have to figure out, okay, how's this going to work for me and, and how am I going to experiment? Um, and I think that makes, it, that makes it work for an individual and it makes it more mentally interesting because there's so much advice out there about, okay, totally. here's, how, here's how early you should wake up in the morning. Here's how you should meditate. Here's how you should exercise. Here, here's how you should eat. And, yeah. um, and I think part of it is figuring out what works for you personally. And the only, but the only way to figure out what works for you personally is to try a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. um, and, and, and do A-B testing on, on your own body and your own <laughs> psyche and to constantly be challenging. And the, the, the hard part about that is you're, uh, you're experimenting in real time and and there's also the, the 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 tension to that is there's also value to consistency, right? You have to do something mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time before you can assess how it's working. So it's like this insane multivariable challenge. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's interesting the way you've you've addressed it by just you know setting a crazy like totally new type of goal or experience or application of a basic mm -hmm. set of of uh, foundational mm. principles. Yeah, yeah, I like how you how you frame that. I mean, for for me, I, I I'm not sure I'd be motivated to try it otherwise, right? Right. It, it sort of has to have this element of of large, uh, 
somewhat risky appetite. Um, kind of like venture, right? Um, yeah. It, yeah. It sort of had to have that element to, to keep me consistent and curious and trying things. I'm, I'm also intrigued by something you said earlier about the mental knots and, and the, yeah. the, the different types of meditation. Um, I, I, had, I had an experience that was somewhat similar, a realization that was similar. And when I started to do um, uh, 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 tanks, uh, what, what am I thinking of? Uh, tanks? Uh, submersion tanks or immersion tanks. Oh, um, like floating? Float, float tanks, yeah. Float let, tanks, let, me, yeah. <laughs> let me start over. Yeah. I had a similar experience uh, or realization when I started experimenting with float tanks. Yeah, I think uh, I remember that. Because what would happen is I, I would get into the tank and I would say, okay, clear the mind, focus on the breath. Okay, oh, wait, there's this thing that came up that's been really bothering me. Okay, I'm going to try not to think about that. Going to think about it for a little while. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe two or three minutes have passed. Okay, oh, there's another thing. I'm going to think about that for two or three minutes. Okay, mm-hmm. and then I would, and the normal float tank time period was 60 minutes. And so I would be <laughs> thinking that about 15 minutes had passed. And then the light would go on. The thing would bling. It would the light, uh, the the beep would chime or whatever it was, and it would say, "Oh, 60 minutes is up." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? That much time has already passed." Yeah, and I yeah, spent yeah. all of my time thinking about all the things I was trying to not think about. But yeah. the craziest part is once I got out, I got you know showered, got my clothes on, I would just sit there and, and have some tea, you know, for for a few minutes before I left. But my my mind at that point was totally calm. Like mm-hmm. it was like I had done all the hard work, and it, it was it was kind of like getting a massage. Like it was incredibly painful, but afterwards I was I was calm, I was peaceful, and I was I had I worked out my demons in some way. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to frame it. Working out your demons. Um, one of one of the guys I I go to every year who puts on a, a bit of a clinic. He calls it. Um, archaeology of the heart and so you know like an archaeologist you're kind of sweeping away layers and layers and layers and layers until you get to like the real critical hard stuff and and i would find like a lot of the noise is more yeah it's just sort of practical open loops of to-do items and whatnot but like the the stuff that can really hold you back you know the 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 walls or the emotional um uh, challenges that is sort of once you work that out, it is like weights have been lifted off your your shoulder. It's it's really it's kind of a very healing um, process. Mm. And, and so, speaking of, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, having to invent new challenges for yourself to keep thing to, to keep those muscles strong. You, you and Jen uh, uh, ha- had a child, and, and then you decided to set a, an ambitious goal uh, in terms of uh, your, your travel plans. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of keeping things interesting, yes, having a child, <laughs> that is a great, a great challenge, not to be underestimated. Um, but uh, in But that Canada- wasn't enough for you. <laughs> Well, well, yeah. I mean, in in Canada, we have quite good uh, paternity leave benefits. Mm -hmm. And actually, my wife was a contractor, so could not take 
maternity leave. And so the paternity leave benefits accrued to me. And so we took three months off and uh, went to New Zealand um, and, and basically lived in a van for uh, a third of it and then was on farms for about a third of it where you kind of earn your keep and then a third of just uh, touring around at different um, Airbnbs. And with, with your newborn child? With our newborn child, yeah. I mean, he was probably <laughs> six months. Then. Okay, okay. Um, but uh, y- yeah, right? Like have a under one-year-old um, in a camper van for six weeks. Um, yeah, you, well, I mean, you, you learn you learn all valuable team working skills and get to know your kid pretty, pretty intimately. And, and, and what, what inspired that? Because, because I think, again, a, a lot of people would say or, or would feel, okay, we just had a child, our, our, everything's crazy. Maybe we get some time off, maybe we don't, but let's just, let's just nest. Let's just go from here, you know, from our, our home to the coffee shop and back. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, what, what inspired this, this idea? Um, yeah, so the, uh, it's important to have context. So um, Jen and I are both uh, were both travelers before. So mm-hmm. you know she lived two years in South Africa and traveled around Africa quite a bit. Um, I had backpacked independently for six months through South America um, and traveled lots of in lots of places. So we kind of want to pass that on to to mm-hmm. the next generation. Now I realize you don't have to do that when they're a baby, right? There's lots of time. <laughs> To impart this this uh, this trait, but um, really it was uh, it was January and it's really dark and uh, oh no it wasn't it was um, yeah yeah it was it was January which is dark and cold in Canada mm-hmm. and if you go to the other side of the the hemisphere it um, it's a lot sunnier and so uh, that was kind of the gist of it and then we're big campers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to- to- toting around a tent and setting that up and down. And it just kind of landed on uh, a-, a camper van, which actually is great because when the kids got a nap, boom, you got his bed. He's hungry. Boom. You got his food right there. It's like a portable house. It's, um, <laughs> it actually worked out really, really well. And um, as-, as a parent, you'll know, uh, planning is is and and trying to show up uh, places on time is sort of impossible and so we could just go with the flow and um you know depending on weather and location we we hunker down or move on um it was it was actually extremely liberating um you know not having to be anywhere um being a fully self-sufficient unit um and uh you know i had my survival skills so we'd, <laughs> right. we'd, be, uh, we'd be just fine. If the camper breaks down, honey, don't worry. I can make a debris hut. <laughs> yeah, I'll invite, you, I'll invite you into my debris hut. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give um, the kid the banana, yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. That's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and is, it some, is there something in the Canadian spirit around travel? Uh, I, I've, I've kind of noticed this. I, mm. For some reason, I... Having lived both places, I feel that Canadians have just more of an attraction or a comfort with travel, whereas in the U.S., I feel like people are either more fearful or, or, or maybe there's just more places to visit without leaving the country. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I have great, a great feedback. I mean, 
there's always the joke that Americans, when they go overseas, sew on a Canadian flag on yeah. their bags, yeah. right? So they, right. they come across, man, maybe there's some of that, but um, I think it's more about the individual. I've certainly uh -huh. met a lot of uh, Americans abroad. Um, I, I don't, I don't know because I mean, look, there's a lot of Canadians that don't travel and sure. the majority of my friends who have kids are like, you are, this is the dumbest decision of your life to, to go. <laughs> you, you have, you have no idea. And, um, so no, I think it's balanced and it's, you know, more a function of who you hang out with. Maybe. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. I, 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 I have a feeling, I mean, sh sure, there's, there's definitely a, a range on, on in both sides, but I have a feeling, may, and maybe this, this flag issue is just Canadians are, are less fearful when they go abroad because they're more welcomed or neutral. Um, uh, and, and you're right, there's certainly many, many uh, Americans that, that travel. I just feel like for some reason, there's just not as much of a zest for like, let me... Oh. Let me travel all over the place and, and, and let me you know, take off a year and travel. It's just not a huge part of the culture here um, mm. for some reason. I, I, and I haven't really nailed it down, but it's just a, a sl subtle nuance that I've noticed just having lived both places. Mm. Um, I, and again, I could be wrong, but that's just my perception. Um, yeah, yeah, because you've traveled quite a bit, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, a, a bit. I mean, I would say it's just it's just not as fundamental to mm. my my being somehow. Mm. Um, but uh, I don't know that 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 can change and, and flux with stage of life and and what have you. Totally. Um, wow, would like to move into the rapid fire section uh, oh, of the podcast to put you in the hot seat. Okay. <laughs> So let me ask you this question. It's one of my favorite questions. Uh, what do you believe that others do not? I think people might be more fulfilled if they were more uncomfortable. Um, I, I've always found a, a stretch of time that is not uh, traditionally seen as comfortable. Um, there's always an inflection point after that. So, and so if that's true, why would you not seek out uncomfortable situations? Does that make sense? It, 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 it does. And, and I, I tend to agree. Uh, but I, I think it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of degree. I feel like, uh, cause I would agree. I think a lot of, let's put it this way. I think a lot of people would agree um, generally, but I think you've done a great job of taking it to a, a, a greater, you know, extreme. And I, I think with more extreme benefits. So I think you're a good role model for, for this. Yeah. And I, I want to um, preface it a little bit. I mean, obviously, I'm very fortunate to be able to pick and choose those circumstances, right? Like mm -hmm. in, in so many lives, there's just really not that, that opportunity. Um, but, but I found uh, as you kind of push through some of those um, uncomfortable feelings or situations, uh, there's always gold on the other side. I mean, um, yeah, it's always, always seems to be worthwhile. And how do you, how do you, besides some of these like big events, how do you manifest that in your day to day? 
so the the one thing that uh, a mindfulness practice does is makes you hyper aware of your thoughts, right? And it allows you to sort of remember that. And so there, there's opportunities to practice things that make you uncomfortable, right? Don't say that, or, you know, why would you do that? But instead of just being caught up in, in your instincts, you're actually aware of like, this is the moment, this is an opportunity to, to say that thing and push the boundary a little bit. Um, so there's kind of like little micro opportunities, I guess, Mm. um, that, that I can do that. And, and even, you know, with relationships and opportunities to, you know, talk through things or bring up things that are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, it's really just practicing those little opportunities as well. Gotcha. The way I've been experimenting with this is, uh, is waking up early. So this Mm. year, this year I've been waking up insanely early and, and doing my workouts like very first thing in the day. Nice. Um, And I've been very consistent with it and it's been quite rewarding. Uh, but it, it, but even, even have after having done it for, uh, 10, 11 months now, it is still, it, it is still hard. <laughs> and, yeah. and if I, if I skip a day, if I accidentally sleep in or if I yeah. uh, am sick or whatnot, there's a, there's a momentum and it's hard to, it's hard to go yeah. back to it, right? Once you get in the groove of something, it's easy to keep going. But once you slip out of it, uh, getting back into it and re-strengthening that muscle is extremely challenging. Totally. How, what is, how do you feel like the moment you, you've, you wake up because that's like the moment, right? Yeah. That you either sleep in or what, yeah. what's... I mean, I feel, uh, I feel like I want to go back to sleep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and in the early days it was, it was very hard. It was, uh, I, I would feel terrible for basically the whole day. Uh, but then after oh, a couple oh. weeks, uh, I just got into it and I would, only feel terrible for the first five or 10 minutes. And then I would get into a workout and, uh, and start feeling really good. Uh, and then there was this feed, great feedback loop of, uh, I, I feel good. So I have a better attitude and mindset for the day. And then, and the, the big problem with, with working out for me has been, I try to work out a certain time of the day, but things come up and they get in the way mm, or they totally. make me push yeah. it to the next day or whatnot. Um, and I did experiment with some mindfulness meditation in the mix, uh, or in addition, but I found that for me personally, I could, I could do some of the mindfulness while I was exercising. And I could also do some of the mindfulness while I was doing other things, like while mm-hmm. I was cleaning dishes or while I was, uh, in the shower, like I could just, I could just start breathing. I could get into that mindset without without having this nagging feeling like, okay, you're wasting time. Like this is 10 minutes. You could be doing something (laughs) practical, which is, I think is a flaw of mine because I, I can't, or I shouldn't say I can't, I'm challenged, uh, in, in doing that and sitting Mm. quietly for 10 minutes because I have this nagging feeling, these nagging feelings, but I found a way, you know, per our earlier conversation, of experimenting in new ways that happen to work for me may not work for other people, but happen to work for me. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been great. I mean, I've, uh, it's changed my life and, hmm. and, uh, I hope, uh, hope I can continue doing it. That's uh, that sounds great. And to, to me, that's sort of the end goal of mindfulness that it is integrated into your day and you're practicing, um, throughout the day. 
right? I'm, I'm sort of with you the whole like sitting there for 20 minutes. Um, it's a great entry point, but um, yeah, I don't think it's the be all, be all end all. Yeah, well, it's great to hear someone else say that because I, you kind of feel uh, sometimes I kind of feel like I'm on an island when I when I have thoughts like that. So it's, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, let me ask you this: you're a you're a elder gentleman now at this point to to some <laughs> cer- oh, to certain God, yeah. to certain demographics. So the question would be: what advice would you give to a young person? Maybe they're in college, maybe they're right out of college, trying to figure out what they want to do. What advice would you give to that person? Basically, try as many things um, as you can to figure out what you don't really resonate with. Um, And to do that, you're going to have to do a lot of unpaid things that require a lot of initiative. But you're going to you're going to narrow down um, the things that I think you're going to value and find important to to spend the majority of your your life on. I, I really struggled with that. I, I really didn't know what I was going to do, you know, right until kind of my mid early twenties. Um, and what do you, what so do you yeah. mean? Um, what do you mean unpaid things? Like, are you saying you should, you should kind of volunteer for things or you should yeah. do things on your own? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. V- volunteer. I mean, if you volunteer, you can get into leadership roles um, that no one would ever pay you to do because you have no experience, but um, it's volunteer. And so you can cut your teeth um, in, in, in that regard. Um, yeah, and you know, that's sports, that's extracurricular, that's causes, that's what, whatever. Um, like I, and, and then also, you know, you can get paid as well. Um, you know, thinking back, I had so many ridiculous jobs uh, through my teenage years, um, that I, I learned a lot about what I was good at and what I wasn't. Um, and, and so, so, so much, I, I think, and I'm totally, could be totally wrong here, but you know, people carefully craft, you know, their career path just from the input and their, their, from their parents and their friends, they don't actually get out there and try different things. And, you know, your dad was a fisherman doesn't mean, you need to be a fisherman, but you probably are going to end up a fisherman because that's where the most influences mm-hmm. are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, yeah, I just think exposing yourself to a lot of different stuff is helpful. And, and if, if you make that the metric you track, like in a year, you, you know, you can get involved in 30, 40, 50 things. Um, that would usually take an unfocused person, you know, five years to, to have all those uh, conversations. Um, can you can you accelerate that? Totally, totally. I mean, I think it. Uh, I I agree, and I think it's especially important the earlier in life uh, mm-hmm. as, as possible. Be, just because people do spend years of their life studying a subject they don't care about, um, yeah. or working in a field they hate, uh, and they got into it because they they thought it was something else. Uh, yeah. So I think I think gathering that data um, as early as possible, uh, whether it's on your own as an individual or as a parent, it kind of exposing your kid to different things, I think is incredibly useful and practical. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and it, it, a great a great example is how you neither you nor I really knew what engineering was until we we got into it. We're like, oh, what's this? What is this crazy field? Yeah. Um, let's say you could put a billboard up in Vancouver or any major city, mm. uh, and it could just say one phrase, one quote, something like that. What would you What would you want to put up? Well, marijuana would be the obvious choice now in Canada, but I, I think someone's thought of that billboard already. Um, wow, so a broadcast message to the city. To the world. Um, you, you know, I feel that there's not enough urgency around climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with the fires in California, yeah, people in other fields are kind of nodding their head. But, like, if you had... A, a very intelligent raving lunatic pounding the table that was in the news every day about climate change, I, I feel like it would be a bit more top of mind and people would start to really embrace um, some of the issues. Mm. And, you know, I heard a quote that we're the last generation to to, to realize this. Um, and the first, sorry, and the first generation, to, no, we're the first generation to realize this and the last generation to do anything about it. Um, and yeah, I think if I could broadcast the message, it would be like, look, the climate risks um, are going after your grandkids. Yeah, it's the greatest challenge of our time. And, yeah. uh, and it was made pretty real for, for us here in San Francisco. I mean, totally. we, we, totally. could not, we effectively could not take our kids outside to play for wow. two weeks. And, wow. uh, and that, that, that brought it home. I mean, of course, yeah. of course, hearts and, and prayers, thoughts and prayers go out to the people who are actually very close to the fires and had to deal with the actual fire and, and, mm-hmm. and destroying their homes and whatnot. But even uh, many dozens or hundreds of miles away, dealing with the, the, the smoke um, uh, was, has been challenging for, for mm-hmm. people living in the city. And it, it feels like a, uh, it feels like an indication of what's to come. And it feels like this is becoming the new normal. I mean, just within a matter of days, you saw everybody on the streets wearing masks. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we as a species are, are highly adaptable. But yeah. uh, so, so I think in, in a lot of ways, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll adapt. We'll, but at the same time, it's not an environment that we want to live in. And it's not an environment we want our kids to live in. And there's no... And it's, and it feels scary when it feels like there's no escaping it. And, uh, and so I, I hear you. Oh, yeah. The, the new normal. That, that is scary. Yeah. 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 Um, well, well, awesome, man. Uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, this has exceeded my expectations oh, dramatically uh, for uh, my already high expectations for this conversation. Well, James, really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Um, just final question is... Where can people find you and, and, and Sanctuary and, and follow up on, on all the exciting things you're doing? Yeah, best bet is uh, Sanctuary.ai is our website, and you can follow our Twitter feed, uh, Sanctuary underscore AI on Twitter. And then uh, if people are interested to have more of a conversation, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so James G. Wells uh, on LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, I'm sure you'll get a few pings uh, from, from the listeners 
once again, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure being your friend and colleague over the past years, and I'm really excited for, for what you're doing. So, so thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm based in Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early stage startups. Having met all of the individuals at this organization, I can attest that they not only talk the talk, they really walk the walk. And you couldn't ask for a more down-to-earth, mission-oriented group of people. Highly recommend. Uh, and if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. Uh, and if you like today's episode, I would ask that you like and subscribe. And if you love today's episode, I would ask that you give us a rating and a review, good or bad. It really just helps to make the podcast better. So until next time, we will look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Epic Human Podcast.